All right, you guys. So this is going to be part three of our consideration of the Lord's address to the church in Sardis. So we'll finish this section tonight, Lord willing. And for tonight, our focus is just going to be on the last three verses of the section. We're in Revelation chapter three, just like we have in the last few weeks. If you remember from previous weeks, though, there is an important in, in, um, introduction from Jesus in the first half of verse one. And then the second half of verse one and all of verse two, Jesus identifies the problem that the church in Sardis was having to deal with. And then also in verse two, and then in verse three, Jesus offers the needed correction for the congregation in this kind of trouble and engrossed with this kind of sin. And then there is the last section, which we have tonight, which is verses four through six. And in this portion, Jesus offers commendation for the congregation. In other words, he encourages them. He has good things to say to them for those who would repent and especially for those who have not been involved with the sin of this specific congregation. So let's read our passage. We'll begin at verse 1 just to have the full context in our mind as we deal with the, the last section, the last three verses, especially tonight. But the reading of God's word beginning at verse 1 in Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray really quick and ask him to, to bless our time in it. Our Father, you are good and holy. And we know that we need to hear this address ourselves personally, just as much as Sardis needed to then. Uh, we pray that you would help us to be certain, Lord, that we are not simply thinking we are alive when we are not truly alive, God. We know that to be alive means to be united, united to Christ in faith. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be sure about the gospel this evening, that you would cause us to think the right thoughts after you, that you would help us to really make our calling and election sure as you instruct us to in your word. We don't want to be deceived, Lord. And so we pray that any areas of deception that exists in our thoughts about you, that you would clear those things up so that we may believe what is true and what is right, and that you would be exalted in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a brief recap is in order. I won't spend a lot of time here, but this is a congregation that is in serious trouble. Uh, they have abandoned the gospel as the source of joy, and they have become busy with doing things. Things which are probably good things, if you remember, right? I mean, they have a reputation for being alive, after all. They bear the name of Christ, in other words, and yet they, as a general whole, don't really have Christ. But we read that there's a portion of them who are about to die. And this is tricky, of course, because a person who has been saved, who has been born again and has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, a person who has truly entered the new covenant with God, can't lose that salvation. They can't fall out of that covenant. God keeps those who are saved, saved. But here's the complicated matter in that. 
some who profess to be saved aren't actually saved. Some who are considered to be part of the new covenant, they believe it about themselves and others believe it about them, even though they really are not, and they haven't been born again, or said differently, they haven't been born from above. They aren't actually saved, in other words, and they're still dead in their sins. And so when the Lord Jesus offers a warning like this to his churches, saying that there are some who are about to die unless they do X, Y, and Z, what the, he's meaning is that there are people who are truly saved, that are involved with serious, unrepentant sin, and they are being warned to repent along with those who are deceived about their salvation. Both groups are being warned at the same time. And those who are actually saved, even though they're caught up in this serious sin issue, they will at some point repent. They are about to die, but they can't actually die. God in his kindness won't let them. And this word from him is his means of correcting and persevering them of bringing them to repentance so that they change and they put to death these things that are not pleasing to God. And perhaps if God is merciful, some of those who are confused about their salvation and who only who think they are alive but actually are not, like the opening section of this passage says, that they may also repent for the first time and be saved and become more than just having a reputation for being alive, but be actually alive. But for the and remember from last two previous weeks, to be alive in this context means to be saved, to be united to Christ. But for the congregation as a whole, there are some that haven't abandoned the gospel and haven't stopped resting in the gospel for their joy and assurance. Sardis is in a bad place. If things continue down the path that they are on, uh, they will have their lampstand removed, like he warned with the church in Ephesus back at the beginning of chapter 2. But every congregation at some level, has matters like this to deal with, where there are people who truly believe and others who are deceived, even though they think they are truly believing. Sardis just happens to be a congregation that is a very bad example of it, where there are many who are self-deceived and have been deceived in the congregation about their standing with Christ. They are on the verge of no longer being a church even. That is why, you know, he, at the beginning he says, you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Listen to what the Second London Baptist Confession says here. It's on this sort of a topic. Uh, this is from chapter 26 on the church. It's Article 3. It says, The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Some have degenerated so much that they have ceased to be churches of Christ and have become synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ will, will, excuse me, Christ always had and will have in this world to the very end a kingdom of those who believe in him and profess his name. So every local church will struggle with sin and false doctrine and a lack of obedience at some level, at some level. And some get so bad that they can't even really be called a Christian church anymore. Certainly, that is the testimony of what all of Scripture says. And I think it's also what we see. Like we talked about a couple churches last week who seem to be very much like this church here in Sardis. Sardis seems to be on the verge of 
what the second London Confession said about no longer being a church, but actually being a synagogue of certain has denigrated so much that the people there are so deceived that, that the, the substance of what makes a church a true church, which is, of course, having Christ at its head and having the members of it being regenerated or born again, is so minimal that, and, and especially even in the leadership, that it just no longer can rightly be called a church. Sardis seems to be very, very close to that. But there are still some who Christ has kept here in Sardis. Notice verse 4, and this is where that last section begins. So that was all recap, really. Verse 4 says this, though. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So the Lord always keeps a remnant, doesn't he? He always has his people. Even no matter, even if things are going crazy all around you, if you are the Lord's, you should be encouraged to know that the Lord always has a remnant. He always keeps his people safe. And, and I'll define safe in a moment. But there are a few names in Sardis who haven't soiled their garments. There are a few in Sardis who haven't abandoned the gospel, in other words. There are a few in Sardis who aren't living in sin and rejoicing in it. There are a few that are not trying to be right with God based on what they do, but they are resting in Christ and the gospel promises he brings. And the Lord, again, he always has a remnant in this world that is seeking him in faith and in worshiping him in spirit and truth. And if Noah and his family found favor in God's sight and were saved from judgment in the ark, which was a type of Christ, uh, Lot was a righteous man, the Apostle Peter tells us, living among much wickedness. And if you know anything of Lot's story in Scripture, we would be remiss to say that his righteousness was based on his actions. It's a righteousness that was had to have been given to him and accredited to him based on the merits of Christ. Uh, God hid and preserved some prophets during Elijah's day, and he's continued to preserve his church through the centuries. All throughout church history, heresies have risen, and God would direct his people to the truth, and then they would form creeds. They would write these creeds, these statements of faith that would affirm what is the true teaching of Scripture, especially in light of the false teaching that was plaguing the church. In the 11th century, the church was essentially divided into in half. Uh, God preserved his word through that, though. In the Reformation, an even greater divide took place, and God preserved his church through that. This is how he works. Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against him. And the gates of hell seem to be open wide in Sardis. Yet, there are some who have not compromised. There are some, we read, who have not soiled their garments. Some that he has kept here. They walk with him in white, we read. All throughout Revelation, we're going to see this color reflecting the loveliness of heaven. Uh, think of the white stone in chapter 2. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago as well. There's a, there's a great white throne in Revelation 20. It's the color of purity, of, of symbolizing victory. It's a picture of those who are fully vested in keeping the gospel. People who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're clothed in white. They haven't soiled their garments, in other words. But listen, it doesn't mean that they're not without sin. It doesn't mean that these select few are perfect by their own works, whereas the others are not. What it means is that these few who are clothed in white, they are the ones who have not abandoned 
hope in the gospel. They aren't seeking to keep themselves saved by their own works, but they are fully trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. It is, it is as Isaiah tells from the Lord in 118. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And how does that happen? How does sins that are like scarlet or crimson, deep dark red, in other words, become white like snow or wool? I don't know if you have any experience doing laundry or like dyeing clothes, but things never go from red to white. White things become reddish. They get tainted. It would take a miracle for you to wash a white shirt and a red shirt together and have them both come out looking like pure white snow. And that's the point. It takes a miracle. They can't do it themselves. We can't do it ourselves. Psalm 51.1 puts it like this. The psalmist says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The psalmist is speaking to the Lord God, asking for the Lord to clean him, to wash him, to purge him. And it's only the Lord who can do it. Even in the time of the psalmist writing that, doing all of the old covenant ceremonies and the sacrifices, those were all good and right to do. They provided a, a temporary atonement and they pointed forward to the atonement that Christ would do but his participation in them wouldn't be what makes him right before God it was always the Lord's work and it was alluded to and it was given through types but in the New Testament we have clear special revelation about how this is done we've already seen testimony of this here in this book actually look back at chapter 1 and verse 5 in in Revelation yeah, back at chapter 1, verse 5. There we read, and, from, and to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's the shed blood of Christ there on the cross that was accepted as payment for our sins and it's applied to us and in that application of it to us it is that which washes us and makes us to be clothed in white because it's not only do we have our sins forgiven but we also have Christ Jesus's sinless life his positive actions the things that he did do and his negative actions in other words the things he didn't do which he was right to avoid, they're all accredited to us so that we can stand before God clothed in white as we read here in Revelation 3. It is all what Christ has done and, and some in Sardis still cling to it. You know, it's not enough to just have Jesus' death on the cross on your behalf, his substitutionary death on your behalf. It's not enough for that for you to actually be clothed in white because if that was all it was, you would sin again. I mean, how many of us here in this room, after even experienced salvation, still sin? You know, my hand goes up for that. And so if that was the case, then that pure white would automatically have some, it'd already be turning pink because it'd be mixed with some, some sin that is like scarlet or like crimson. But not only did Jesus's 
work on the cross satisfy the penalty against sin, but his holy and righteous and perfect life, his life in which he never once sinned, he always did what was right, he never did what was wrong, he never transgressed God's law, that righteous standard is accredited to us through the faith that he gives us. And really that is the substance that causes us to be clothed in white. Christ's righteousness accredited to us. Okay, and there's no, there's no changing that. There's no polluting that. Because Christ isn't, he can't get any worse. He can't um, sin at all. He, he's in, impossible for him to do so. And so we have that. And so that the text here would say that we are clothed in white. And, and some in Sardis are still clinging to that. Clinging to the hope that is offered to them in Christ and Christ alone. But it's more than being just clothed in white. We also read and that they were worthy, which is an amazing statement. In just a few chapters, we'll see that there's a scroll to be opened that no one could open. This, this scroll here in, the, in this heavenly vision. But then there is one who is worthy, and it's Christ. And so this worth described here is not saying that people are worthy in and of themselves. It can't be that, right? Because they aren't clothed in white in it of themselves. Look at, look at what it says in verse 4. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Why is it that they're worthy? It's because they're joined to Christ. Because of their union to Christ. It is Christ who is the worthy one. And in his saving of us, of them, we are so united to him that this is simply a benefit of the gospel. It's amazing. This is why leaving it amounts to death. If you're not united by faith to Christ, you're not worthy. And you'd be dead spiritually. Now, verse 5 continues the commendation and encouragement. Verse 5, the one who conquers... We've spoken about this before in previous verses. Same concept as being worthy though, right? It has to do with us being united to Christ. In Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors, Romans 8.37 says. And then he mentions again that we're clothed in white. Why? Because those who conquer in Christ are clothed in white. And that means that they are also worthy to do so in Christ. But there's something more that we should see here. So turn with me to Revelation 16, please. This is what I was speaking of last week when I was talking about us thinking of Christ coming not bodily, but in judgment within the course of within the course of history in light of Revelation three three. Remember, we Jesus has come to the earth once. He's born of a virgin. That was his first coming, and we know he's going to come again bodily as well. Remember in Acts. He's taken up in a cloud, and the angels say that this Jesus who you see, he will come back to you again in that same way. Well, there's those two comings of Christ, but also Scripture speaks about Christ coming, not bodily, but coming in acts of judgment. And that's what he was saying here to the church in Sardis, that he's going to come like a thief in the night. So now, verse chapter 16. Verse 15 is what I really want you to see here in 16. But someone do me a favor and look at verse 12. And tell me what the context of verse 15 is. So if you're in Revelation 16, someone tell me what the context of Revelation 
16 is by looking at verse of uh, what Revelation 16 15 is by first looking at Revelation 16 12. And if you're not familiar with Revelation, let me give you a clue here. It's going to talk about eventually here three different kinds of judgments soon, all in groups, all um, groups of seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. So, what is the context of verse 15 based off of verse 12? A bull. That's a bull. Which, which angel? What number bull? The sixth bull. Okay. So now look at what verse 15 says. We have the language of Jesus coming again like a thief. Remember, that's not the second coming. That's not the final coming. After all, there's still another bull to mention in chapter 16. It's referring to judgment in time. But then note how it references garments and being clothed. That lines right up with Revelation 3. That, that lines right up with what we are reading in Revelation 3. This bold judgment here in Revelation 16 isn't some future event that we don't have to worry about with these bold judgments. This certainly isn't some future event that the church in Sardis doesn't need to worry about. It's happening to them now, right around 90 AD. So you, excuse me, you remember this whole book is a letter that is to be read to the seven churches and to the church in every age, wherever it is. But it's not like Sardis received what we call Revelation 3, 1 through 6, and that's it. They got Revelation 1 through 22. And so listen to G.K. Beale here. He says, Christ's words concerning garments and coming like a thief in verses 3 and 4 are echoed in the bold visions, which again shows the interrelationship of the letters and visions. The trials of the bull visions are happening, in measure at least, to the church in Sardis, even as it receives this letter. And the shocking imagery of the visions is meant to jolt them into realizing that what is being addressed to them in the letter is actually unfolding before their very eyes, could they only realize it. And by that he means, he's, he's alluding to verse 6, you know, if they have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, is if you could see it through by faith. Then he says, he back up says that it's actually unfolding before their eyes as the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet have already launched their attack. And sadly, are having some success. He says sadly having some success because it's true. It is sad that happened, but the Bible warns us all about it over and over. We should expect it. You see how this book of Revelation is a book that we need to understand now that it's not just prophecy about things that will happen in the future. There is some of that. But it's concerning things that are happening at this very moment. When a church today, if it neglects the gospel and compromises with the world and soils its garments, like it says here in our text, it is properly called a dead church. And these bowls, seals, and trumpet judgments are taking place now. We'll learn about them more in coming months. But brothers and sisters, we need to heed. We need to take to heart the things that are contained in this book now. It's telling us about life here and now. It's not just some future thing in the, in the future where things get really bad. No, no, no. This book is describing life for the church in between Christ's first and second coming, bodily comings. And then verse 5 closes with these two encouraging statements, and they're certainly related. First, he will never blot anyone's name out of the book of life. This quote, book of life, is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. It's mentioned five other times in Revelation. It would also be familiar to them from the history of God's people. 
in Psalm 69, the psalmist is lamenting the trials he's going through because the Lord's enemies have encompassed him. They're, 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 they're pushing him down. They're making his life hard and unenjoyable. He wants the wicked to have their names blotted out of the book of the living. And then he says it in another way too. He asks that the wicked would not be enrolled with the righteous. That's all in verse 28. And they would also be familiar with this sort of language due to the Roman culture that they lived in. Being a, a Roman citizen was something that carried with it a lot of benefits, many rights that wouldn't otherwise be due to a person. So like think of the Apostle Paul when he's in jail and he appeals to the fact that he's a Roman citizen as a way to get him um, face time before Caesar. He, we, we read that in Acts. And so an average Roman colony would keep a list of names of the citizens who were born there or for people who would become citizens by pledging allegiances and by paying some sort of a cost. And they would either keep these on a scroll or like on a stone tablet and etched into it. But anyone who was convicted of a capital crime would have his or her name removed from the list or chiseled out of the stone. So the concept would be one that exists in their minds. But this is not saying that people can lose their salvation. The point isn't that this, the same thing done in the Roman colonies is that a person could have their actual name blotted out here of this book of life. What this is then is an assurance. We are to take from this that Jesus, or we're not to take from this, that Jesus could and does blot people's names out of this book. The point is that they will not be. They will certainly overcome they will certainly be worthy. They are written in the book of life. They are united to Christ through faith. Only true believers are associated with the book of life. People have their names placed in it, not by doing good works or by saying the right thing, which would be a work, not by praying a prayer or, or walking down an aisle, not by being born into the right family or in the right country. People whose names are written in the book of life have it done solely by the decision of God and it is a gift of his grace. It's for those chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Later in Revelation, it's called by a more specific name actually. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. And so the names that are in it are those who have been washed and cleansed by his shed blood, those that he purchased from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so the point here is to assure those who repent by grace and those who have by grace not soiled their garments that God will preserve them into eternity, into glorification and eternal life with him in his presence and all the good that is associated with it. And there's one other thing to notice here as well. And this is associated with the second half of this, this verse as well. But notice that he says he will not blot out his name from the book of life. It could have been that the Spirit would have inspired John to, to write, I will not blot out him from the book of life. But it's the name of the person that's in view here. If you remember from last week, name is the Greek word onoma. And it's onoma that is used back in verse 1, where the, in the English, the ESV translates the word reputation. And so what the Spirit is doing here, what Christ is saying here, is that he knows those who are his. He's completely aware that some merely have the name of being alive, the reputation of it, but aren't truly alive. But those who are alive, those who truly bear the name of Christ in truthfulness and love, God knows them. He knows their name. Their name is in the book of life. And when it comes to us, like when we think, how, 
how do I know? How do I know if that's my name? If, if my name is really belonging there? There is an aspect, of course, of Scripture where we're, we're told, we're encouraged that we're to make our calling and election sure. You know, we were to, were to think about these things. Do I truly belong to Christ? Do I know that I'm a product of grace and I'm secure in his hands? Because when you're a product of grace, then you are secure in his hands. There is nothing that can take their names out of the Lamb's book of life. Reason for it, there's nothing they did to put their name in there. If they did something to put their name in there, then logically you would think they could do something to have their name come out. But we read in Romans that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not life or death or angel or principality or any power, because God who began to work in you will complete it. I mean, you can imagine Sardis receiving this letter and then getting to chapter 3 and then being stunned at verse 1. Imagine what they must have felt like. We're a dead church. I only have a reputation for bearing the name of Christ, but really I don't and I'm dead. And then they read through the rest of the letter and the sort of trials that the church will be facing and they're already facing and it's a lot. But not everyone in Sardis is dead. Not everyone is spiritually dead. And these verses here are an encouragement to them. And those that are spiritually dead, they have an opportunity here to repent. You understand that, right? I hope. That at every point where the scriptures are pointing out sin, that that is the mercy of the Lord and an opportunity for you by grace to agree with God and to repent and plead for the mercies found in the person of Christ. To pray that God would change your heart and give you a heart of flesh, uniting you to Christ. To have his satisfying work of atonement applied to you so that you can be reconciled to God and truly enjoy the life that you were given from God. Man's chief end is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. But if you're not united to Christ, you won't be doing that. Not enjoying him at least. Although, you know, God's holiness and his righteousness is even um, being glorified even in our rebellion because it points to our great need for him. But the point here, though, is that Christ will never blot out of his book the names of those people who are in there, the names of people who have truly repented. And what an encouragement it is to know that your name is written in this book, because if you truly have a desire to repent, well, it's because your name is already in this book. All the glory goes to God, and your confidence then, even in your ability to repent, is actually in God. Because it all begins with his gracious gift. Nobody not written in the book of life would have a desire to repent, truly. The only reason anybody would have a desire to repent is because they have been chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world. And then when the Spirit comes and causes you to be born from above, born again, then that repentance uh, will become evident in your life because your desires will have been changed at that point. Now, the last part of verse 5, those whose names um, are in the book of life, Jesus will confess that person's name, his onoma, before his father and his angels. This promise for the Lord is that those people who don't compromise with the gospel and seek to be right with God based upon um, 
anything but the work of Christ is that they have an advocate for them, that an advocate is Christ Jesus himself, that those who bear the name of Christ, he will also confess their names before the Father and the angelic hosts of heaven. A similar phrase is seen to this in the gospel accounts. There, Jesus is warning about persecution. And persecution only comes to a church when the church stands in opposition to the world and the false systems of belief that exist in the world. But for this church of Sardis, this is a church in which many have embraced a false system of works righteousness. Their works are not complete, we read earlier. They aren't based on and arrested in Christ. They aren't bearing the name of Christ properly. Many of them are dead or about to die. And so properly speaking, they aren't rightly acknowledging Christ before men. They're kind of, in a sense, they're really acknowledging Christ plus themselves is, is what seems to be the formula of what amounts to death here in Sardis. And that's just one way why that might happen. You might also have to acknowledge Christ before men by not rejecting Christ in the face of persecution. Certainly that's something that Sardis would be dealing with as well. Other churches in this time certainly were. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 10. This is 32 to 33. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this statement here in 3.5 is hearkening back to Jesus' comment there in the gospel accounts. And the promise is that those who acknowledge Christ before men by refusing to deny Christ in the face of persecution and by truly bearing his name in the world, no matter what that means for you, they need not worry because Christ will make safe their path to glory. Even if that safe path ends up being a sword, even if that safe path ends up being a gun, if it means jail, torture, fire, Christ will keep us through persecution. That he is, even in the spiritual places, interceding for you at this very moment. Any claim that the devil or that any demon could bring before God, it doesn't matter. Because Christ is going to confess your name to God and all the hosts in heaven. Hebrews 9 says that Christ Jesus lives to make intercession for his saints. And those Sardonians that truly know the Lord, but are involved in this church that is in great trouble, Jesus is saying, don't worry. I'm still reigning. You won't be lost. And again, it's an encouragement for those who should actually be afraid for them to repent and trust Christ and finally know true peace and joy. This is Christ's promise to those who overcome. Not just for people in Sardis, but for people who live today as well. And remember, we only overcome by the work of Christ. Our trust in him for our salvation is in him and nothing else. It's nothing that we do. And then verse 6, there's that familiar ending. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ's aim here, as Beale says, is to save this church from the brink of death, to wake them up so that what remains will be strengthened. Christ Jesus is so merciful, church. Our right relationship with him begins by grace. It is sustained by grace and is carried to the end all by grace. And all praise be to him for it. Let's pray. Our Father, we need you. And we're so grateful for these gospel encouragements, Lord, to know that those who are truly saved, those who truly are bearing the name of Christ in spirit and in truth and in worshiping in that way, that we are 
clothed in white that we conquer and are considered worthy even. How humbling, Lord. And we know that it's not because of anything in us, but it's solely because of who Christ is and what he has done. And to know that Christ will never have our names blotted out of his book of life, and even more that he is living to make intercession for us, confessing our name before the Father and before the angelic host. Again, not because we are needed or not because we do something to attribute to our righteousness, but solely because we have been humbled and we have seen the loveliness that is Christ Jesus. And we know that we only have seen that because of your grace in our life. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you all the more clearly and that from that we would love you all the more and you would be exalted all the more in our lives as well too. Lord, we pray for churches that are in situations like this one in Sardis. And we pray that first you would have grace upon us and mercy on us and you prevent us from ever being like that. But we know that no church, no local church seems to ever stand uh, the whole test of time. We know there's none of these churches that were written to here um, nearly 2,000 years ago are still in operation today. And so we pray that in so much as we are living, Lord, here on this on this earth before you come back, that you would help us to make our calling and election sure, that you would teach us to watch our life and our doctrine closely. And we pray also for churches that are like this uh, congregation in Sardis now, that you would have mercy on them and that they would see the warnings in your word in turn and that uh, from sin and that those who are truly saved would be comforted and those who aren't truly saved would have repentance granted unto them the first time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, any questions or anything I could try to clear up? Make more clear? Okay.